Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Shikermain, co-director of alumni relations at Hopkins Biotech Network, and I'm joined here with our co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer, editor-in-chief of Hopkins Biotech Network's Transcript. Our guest today is Dr. Max Tejada. He is the senior director at Kite Pharma, an American biotechnology company and subsidiary of Gilead Sciences that develops cancer immunotherapies with a primary focus on genetically engineered autologous T-cell therapies with chimeric antigen receptors known as CAR-T therapies. Their lead product, Iscarta, is a CD19-directed CAR-T that picked up its first FDA approval in October of 2017 for the treatment of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. But more broadly, their CAR-T treatment represents the successful implementation of genetically engineered adoptive cell therapies as a therapeutic modality. And notably, there were exactly zero FDA-approved CAR-T therapies prior to 2017. So this is a relatively new phenomenon. Furthermore, prior to joining Kite, Max served as senior director and head of bioassay impurities and quality testing at AstraZeneca. And he also worked at R&D positions in Gilead Sciences and at Genentech. Max, thank you for joining us on the program today. Yeah, thanks, Roshan. Thanks for having me and Jenna as well. I'm curious about your personal background. So could you just briefly talk about where you grew up and kind of what sparked your initial interests in science? So I'm, I'm originally from South America and my family immigrated to Canada. That's where I got my, my education. And I did a PhD at uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and, you know, graduated there. Um, there was very little in terms of, you know, potential job opportunities in the fields that I, that I thought I would, I would like to work in. Um, and I'd started following a small company called Genentech at the time. It was, it was an innovative company. It was, you know, in the news a lot for a lot of the pioneering the work that they did around the antibody uh, field. And uh, so that's where I thought I'd want to do a postdoc. And I was fortunate enough to, to land, to be, out, be offered a postdoc in, at Genentech. And that was my first industry role. Uh, I was a postdoc at, uh, in Napoleon Ferrara's lab uh, at Genentech. Uh, he's uh, one of the pioneers in the field of angiogenesis that relates to um, cancer. And so, you know, he was... Uh, he was a driving force behind Avastin, right? And so I was, I was lucky to be working in his lab. Um, eventually I landed a role as a scientist within the analytical field that was outside of research. Uh, it was mainly because that's where my passions lay, right? So work in Napo's lab really had to do with developing tools to, um, to detect activity, right? Uh, activity in, uh, from factors that were tumor derived. Right. Um, and so, you know, the ability to chase down those activities required, you know, uh, assay development skills, other technologies to be able to do that. And so, you know, I like being a tool maker. I liked uh, aspects of research, 
but really I was looking for practical, how to, how to practically use, you know, what I, what I discovered. Right. So, um, and also I, I had this, you know, really deep interest in knowing what happened after we identified targets, what, how do we make those medicines and how do we get those to patients? Um, and more importantly, obviously when we drive molecules into commercial, we're, we're expanding the use, right? It's not just limited to clinical trials, but now we're offering it to a large, a larger scale of people to benefit from our medicine. So that's what I was interested in as well. And so it made personal sense that my first job lay within analytical at Genentech. And, and so I stayed there for 15 years. It was a wonderful experience. Um, I was able to pursue things that I had a lot of interest in. Um, there was a lot of faith put in myself and my team and our abilities to, to do really high quality work and deliver and help deliver medicines to patients. So there was a lot of really great opportunities. Um, and then I moved to Gilead and a chance to build a small team uh, around bioassays, you know, which are very, very important when it comes to antibody therapeutics, uh, became available. And so, you know, that was uh, a really great experience. I got to go back to the bench because I'd lost the bench for the last 10 years at Genentech, just because you get so busy with, you know, the day-to-day -day and meetings and so forth. And uh, so I got to go back to the bench, which was great for a little over two years. Um, and then I was recruited to go to AstraZeneca. And, and the interest there was, uh, it was a larger group, obviously the ability to impact more people. Uh, it was a very deep pipeline. It was a very complex pipeline. I, you know, the AZ um, is very uh, courageous, I think, and, and you know, fearless, maybe not, not courageous, but fearless when it comes to trying to identify the right, you know, therapeutic modality uh, that, that's right for an, a specific indication, right? We were not just, we weren't just thinking about one or the other. It just took a wide, very wide approach, which was great. Um, and so I learned a lot there about, you know, leading people and, and uh, you know, supporting a very complex pipeline. So that was really great. And then the chance to come and work in the cell therapy field, right? Which, which as you mentioned, is still fairly new. And the methods that we use are very complicated compared to an antibody field, right? So an antibody field, we would never think about putting a flow-based assay on a control system because it's very complicated. But but there are things that you do in a cell therapy environment that that are not necessarily platform for a antibody environment. Uh, and so they require highly tech, high, more highly technically and specialized people to support those. But all the while, I think what has been consistent in my career is the patients. From the time that I started Genentech and you know, helping support medicines, getting to patients, to Gilead and, and AstraZeneca and um, now Kite, it's always been about the patients. The patients are what, what make me go to work and, and give me that joy of going to work every day um, because I know that the work I do in some uh, small way does impact patients' lives. The work that my group, our group does in analytical also impact, impacts patients' lives. And so that's something that I try to live uh, every day. Just curious, did you ever want to go to medical school um, with your interest in specifically centering the patients at the forefront of your work? I, I thought about it, uh, but I think 
you know, partly, I guess it was the times and maybe my lack of focus early, early on, right? Um, but also, I think if I look back, it's also my interest in uh, trying to help as many people as I could across different indications, right? So where whether it was a Genentech or, or Gilead or now Kite, it's, you know, you, you you capture a lot of people, you impact a lot of people's lives. It's not just in one specific area or disease area, it's many areas. And so I, I think that my life has been, I, I guess myself, I, I feel more fulfilled by having been able to say that in some way, I've been able to reach a larger swath of patients over my time. Yep, that's a really beautiful way of putting it and thinking about, you know, for people thinking about their careers in the future, that's, I think, something to really think about. That's nice. Um, I was wondering if you could walk us through for people that aren't necessarily very familiar with, you know, the idea of uh, biologics versus CAR-T, if we could, you know, sort of start talking about that. So you came up with age in a really interesting time for drug discovery. As you said, Genentech was one of the first companies to start this antibody-based um, research. And so can you just walk us through how biologics and antibody, I guess, development as a therapeutic is different from you know, what was traditionally done at the time in, in the early 90s of like small molecule drugs being really big? Sure. So antibodies are very complex, right? So small molecules can be chemically synthesized, and so they're very well-defined. Um, antibodies are produced in you know, mammalian cells for the most part, and so they come with a lot of post-translational modifications that may impact the activity of the product that you generate in the end, right? So, so that's, I think, the di one of the distinctions between small molecule and large molecule. And so by virtue of that, you need to have a larger set of assays, a, a wide variety of assays to um, you know, assess the quality of, of the product, the final product, before it gets to patients. So you know, that's where bioassays, I think, are very important in that they measure the sum total of the activity in a specific sample where you could have you know, millions of variants, each with a different um, you know, fraction of activity, for example. Right, so that's, I think, one of the differences. Um, as I think the field initially evolved was, you know, antibody itself, what you think of a regular antibody, but then over time, there was, you know, antibody drug conjugates that became part of the arsenal, you know, in, in medicine. There were uh, bispecific antibodies that also then became part of the, part of that. And there are antibody drug conjugate bispecific antibodies. There are T cell engagers, right? These, these antibodies that bring uh, T cells to, uh, to a target, right, more specifically. So, so it's become more and more complicated over time, complex, sorry, and, and the chemistry, obviously, now you, with the ADCs, you get a marriage of small molecule and large molecule chemistries. Um, and then you get to cell therapies where, you know, you um, remove a patient's, you know, immune cells, right? And you modify them, you, you grow them up and you put them back into a patient, to put it very, very simply. Um, and so then you can imagine that each, uh, each time you do that is a different lot. So if we treat a hundred patients, there's a hundred different lots of material, right? Whereas in an antibody world, you could make three lots and treat hundreds of patients, 
And so you can imagine also then the number of tests and the amount of testing that goes into each lot is significantly more than if you were to do something in an, uh, in an antibody world. So that's just a, a small kind of you know, example of some of the differences between you know, the, the antibody field and the cell therapy field. Yeah. And from a research, not a medical advice at all, just from a research standpoint, are there certain types of cancers that are more amenable to, say, a CAR therapy versus an antibody therapy? Is it a question of, you know, timing and we'll start to see more, like, for example, certain hematological cancers, right? So one of the things is obviously we're dealing with autologous product, which is patient, patient to patient specific, right? And then uh, the next step would be to think of allogeneic products where you can make a certain number of batches and be able to treat multiple patients. But then it's also, you know, these, these you know, medicines work on liquid tumors, and you mentioned. The, uh, but then the next step would be what about solid tumors, right? So there are, I think, you know, we're not the only ones in the industry, I think, looking at, at those questions, trying to answer those questions. So you started working at Genentech in 2000 or in the 2000s, and the company was later acquired by Roche, a large multinational healthcare company in 2009. Um, so my question to you is, what was it like working at Genentech during the time of that acquisition before versus after? Uh, you know, I, I loved working at both. Uh, and I think maybe if you ask somebody that had been there a longer time than I was, they give you a different answer. But the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, I, um, I loved going into work before it was fully acquired and I had the same passion after it was fully acquired. I think um, the one thing that I had to get used to was maybe the little bit of the anxiety that comes with not knowing what happens after, right? When, when any, and this is just an example of, you know, the, the, what happens after some, something big changes, right? Whether it's, you know, your, your manager leaving or you're moving to another company or, you know, an acquisition like that was, there's always a little bit of uncertainty. And, and that's really what I was feeling at the time. It was just a little bit of uncertainty. But, you know, with great leadership, uh, that has a very soothing or calming impact on, on how you feel. And so, you know, that was the case and that enabled me and, and my team to focus on the work, which was getting medicine to patients, right? And so um, I didn't really find that uh, much of a difference except that it expanded my opportunities to collaborate with my Roche colleagues. And so something that, that came, something great that came out of it, not only the friendships that I developed with my European counterparts and, and colleagues, but but even now, many years later, I still you know maintain contacts with them, and we were able to work together. There was you know some publications, some good science that was done, um, and some real good interfaces that even now I don't you know they still remain with me. So you know um, nothing but good things about my days at Genentech. So Max, the biotech industry is evolving relatively quickly and not just scientifically, but also operationally. And one such way 
is that biotech companies are increasingly making use of contract research organizations or CROs they're sometimes referred to as. And these are essentially large teams of scientists for hire that you can contract out certain projects to. So for instance, if the company that you're working at has developed some sort of high throughput screen, you can contract that project out to a CRO and they'll return the results of the screen to you after a certain period of time. Uh, Liaising with these CROs is something that you have some experience with. So my question to you is, what is it like to manage R&D activities with offsite teams at CROs in addition to the teams that you manage within the company? So this this is my opinion uh, from experiences that I've gotten over over my career. So always communication is key. And some and so one of the things is, you know, if you have a single point of contact that interfaces between the two organizations, that's probably where you want to be as opposed to multi, multiple lines of contact. Um, definitely when you're thinking about the work, it has to be clear what the expectations are. Sometimes those, those are written in a scope of work or a statement of work that's agreed upon between two companies. Those are, those are two things. Um, it helps when you have a relationship over time with a company, right? It, whether uh, with respect to like prioritization or sometimes things tend to move really rapidly and timelines change and the ability to deal effectively with timeline changes that also comes from a effective relationship that you have with any external partner, right? So I think those are some of the things um, that are important. Even, you know, I would say site visits are, are, are a really good idea at the beginning. Uh, the ability to just put a face to a name and, and um, Zoom is great, but I still think that the face-to-face interaction with people helps to establish that initial relationship, right? That is, that is the base for everything else that happens subsequently. Academia and industry, I think, have some different incentives. On one hand, the primary objective of academia is to publish um, things that lay out a proof of concept. And on the other hand, the primary objective of biotech and pharmaceutical industry is to develop processes that are highly reproducible and highly predictable at scale with a very low defect rate. And through conversations that I've had through reading perspectives of those in biotech and pharma, um, I often hear that one of the biggest challenges in translating academic insights into commercially viable products is this aspect of reproducibility at scale. Um, You have a lot of experience with bioassay development. So I was wondering if you could perhaps shed some light on this area and maybe educate us on how we should think about designing our experiments. And what are some key principles that you've learned along the way in designing effective bioassays that reliably probe a specific biological phenomena when repeated over and over again? Test methods, even, you know, we, we talk about the difference between academic assays and, and more quality friendly assays and a research-based assay could be a half a page, right? You know, if you're a subject matter expert, you could take it a half a page and you'd be able to, to run the assay. In a quality environment, you, you need more than that half a page, right? You need to un- identify, um, you know, which, which critical reagents are the ones that are used in the assay. Uh, you need to identify 
you know, how to perform the assaying, like how many cells go into a, a well, uh, what is the exact incubation time, uh, what is the right reference or controls that you need for the assays, um, what is the shelf life, right? You can't use them, for, you know, we used to use, um, back in one of the companies I worked for, I used to use a critical reagent in an R&D assay that had been stored at two to eight for years. And we, we lost count of how many years, but it was still active. You would never get away with that in a quality environment, right? Because not knowing, you know, not using plate failure to determine the shelf life, it's probably not where you want to be, right? You, again, we want to release patient lots and not have the assay be the stumbling block to releasing, uh, you know, critical medicines to patients. And so you have to understand what the limits are for critical reagents and be able to say, no, this is outside of its shelf life. So we're going to, you know, use something else. I think those are some of the things that I, that I think are important. Uh, method monitoring always obviously is also important, right? Realize that when we develop an assay, that there may be two hands that have developed the assay and they may be very, very experienced hands, meaning that this is not the first set of assays that they've developed. But then when it goes into you know, um, the recipient lab, whether it's quality or another lab, that they don't have the same level of expertise with your assay that you do. And so you know, that there's gonna be a little bit of variability at the beginning while you try, to, you, know, you try to establish more similar or consistent ways of monitoring. And that they may not be the, the only ones that touch your assay. So how does it behave over time? And if it moves to another lab, how does that behave over time? How does that impact? And so the ability to monitor method performance in real time gives you that information and allows you um, to maybe you know, reduce the chances that your assay becomes out of control. And now you have a failure rate that is you know, log orders of magnitude higher than when you first introduced the assay. Right, and so that I think that is another component that you know some companies do very well, and some companies maybe not do so well, but it's definitely a critical, critical component of not only assay development but uh, you know uh, monitoring performance. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on some of the different roles that are available within industry. So for example, you're a senior director now, but before you were a senior research scientist too, or a senior research scientist. So I know it differs from company to company, but in general, what, what roles do those titles typically indicate within industry? You're right. The titles tend to change from company to company, but I think what's consistent is level of experience, right? So your entry level may be um, your bachelor. You know, you have lab experience, but it's limited to what you did during your um, during your undergrad studies, right? And so then the accountabilities are really based on what what skill sets you bring. So if you've got some lab experience, um, you know, we can introduce you to the lab that way. And then as you grow in experience, and it's not just the depth of experience, right? So we talk about maybe proficiency in in several assays, but now you're talking about breath. You know, can you, can you, um, how independent are you? Can you develop your own experiments? Can you interpret the data? You know, do, do you need a little bit of oversight? So, so that's kind of career progression, right? So the next level, maybe there's more independence. The next level, maybe you're um, representing the group in a team. The next level, you're leading teams. So it's just a natural progression of experiences. 
And when you think about someone, for example, um, if you've got a postdoc, now you've got more experience. So now you don't come in as an entry level because you've got that additional experience, right? So it's a different level with different responsibilities. I don't expect that I'll have to teach lab laboratory skills to someone that comes with a, with a postdoc or a PhD, right? So they would come in at a different level. And so that it's, it's still the same. It's you come in with certain skill sets and experiences and now you grow into your next level regardless of what you call that level. Um, and that's consistent. The expectations um, for, for example, an entry level versus somebody that has more experience um, are consistent across industries for you know, analytical types of jobs. And as you get further up this you know, chain and you're now responsible for managing teams, how did you find that transition? Because you mentioned at one point you went back to the bench actually too. So. Yeah. Was it weird? Did you receive training? Do you think it's company dependent on whether or not they train <laughs> like people in management yeah. roles? Like, the criticism we get in academia all the time is, you know, the PIs receive no management right. training. Right, and right. so it's a challenge for yeah. them too. I think that's something that companies do more or less well. Some companies do really well and some companies don't. Um, but then again, I lay that and I look in the mirror as well when it comes to that, right? So even if maybe the overall, the company, a particular company doesn't do it well, I, I don't necessarily think that you can just have someone manage people and instantly they become a great manager, right? It's, it's the effort to develop people, whether they're part of a team or whether they're team leaders, you have to invest in people and management by virtue of its impact on a larger number of people requires more attention, right? Because that manager, depending on the size of the group will impact a number of people, right? So we're not just talking about someone's career being impacted, you're talking about multiple careers. And so there just needs to be more focus on, on that aspect of, of uh, people development. So definitely I don't, you know, I don't agree with um, everybody's born a good manager but you can become really good managers. I would actually, even with, with my current group, I've said this, I don't necessarily want to develop managers. I want to develop leaders. I, I, I really see a distinction between being a manager and being a leader. And one is more active, uh, plays a more active role in people's development. So you've had quite a diversity of experience. You mentioned before working on antibody-based uh, drugs and then even uh, antibody drug conjugates and now with cell therapies um, I think as a researcher because of the focus that's required to push projects across the finish line it can get easy to get tunnel vision and box yourself in as um, I'm the antibody guy antibody drug conjugate guy or the cell therapy guy um, but you seem to have avoided that and, and moved and progressed in many different ways um, so my question to you is how have you managed to stay limber uh, learn new skills learn completely new um, therapeutic areas and gain really deep competence um, in those areas that's, that's that's a good question um you know I, I, I wish I could say I did it, you know, thoughtfully. But initially I did it because I was just following things that I was passionate about. So I started out, you know, as a bioassay developer, but then I wanted to learn what was outside of analytical. And so I took on another role, which was analytical team leader. And I got some experience there and 
then I wanted more. And so I became a CMC team leader and I learned a little bit more. Um, but it was always passion driven, interest driven. It wasn't purposely meaning if I take on this leadership, then I can become this. If I take on this, I can become this, right? It was really more just, I, I was interested, I was eager, I was passionate about the work that we were doing. And, and I just wanted to learn more. It was, it was really that simple. Uh, when I moved to Gilead, it was the challenge of building a small team. I'd never done that before and I was interested and I believed in the, the mission as well. I think that's the other thing, right, that gets lost is, you know, to me, it is, some people may talk about salary when it comes to job or, or the title. For me, it's always been about the work, the people were the two biggest things for me. You know, the work was meaningful, meaning it was patient centric. The people that you work with were great. You know, they're great to work with. It was a, an, an amazing environment. Those are the things that make going to work just just great. I mean, the, the, the reason I've, you know, um, I'm still as passionate now as I was when I started was because those two things that have been important to me, I've always been able to find roles that that give, gave me those things, right? And that's true for Kite. It's true for AZ. It was true for Gilead Engine and Deck in the early days. It was It was true. Um, and so, you know, I, I, different reasons for moving, right? So when I left Gilead, it was um, to lead a larger group because I was interested in, in that, but also the pipeline, the work that we were doing, the pipeline was very complex uh, and offered things, uh, ways to grow that I, that I didn't have. Um, and then moving into a completely different field, you know, again, I am able to leverage a lot of the experiences I have and bring my own perspectives right over my career to the work that we do um, and help my team and help you know develop them as well um, but always with the same passion we and and actually in cell therapy obviously um, you see that almost right away right it's 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 incredible um, and so really it becomes more meaningful that impact that you have on patients lives you can actually you know you see it so you know that that's never changed it's and so i guess i don't know if i've answered your question directly but it's never been about what you called me a senior director or or a scientist or or what have you that was a just a lucky coincidence of you know taking on a different role but um if I could wish a career on anyone, it would be a career that is filled with, you know, passion, you know, activities that that um, that engage you, uh, work that is meaningful, and that you look forward to going to work every day. That makes you want to, you know, just be part of something larger. And, you know, I've experienced that at every company I've I've chosen to work with, um, and Kite is no different. Yeah. So it's really more not necessarily adding a tool to your tool belt just for the sake of doing so. It's really being purposeful in following your curiosities and choosing which ones you should follow and which ones you should not. Yeah. Yes. And that's been for me, for others, it may be different, but that has been, you know, and I think that's part of maybe reduce some of the stress about, you know, having a five-year plan or a 10-year plan that people talk about now and then. And there is no plan. It's just, you know, follow your passion and um, do, love what you do. 
and continue to love what you do. Did you ever struggle finding like a work-life balance where, you know, you were, it's easy, especially I'd imagine, you know, when you're really passionate about something, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to spend all night in the lab because I can, and I want to get this result in the morning because I, I care about it, right? Did you ever, not necessarily specific to the companies, but just wondering if, you know, that was something you had to learn along the way too? Uh, that's a great question. Work-life balance was something that was talked about at Genesis. And at one point I heard uh, one of our executive leaders and she said that, you know, for her, the work-life balance was getting to see her daughter play soccer. And if she, and if she had time to, to, to go to a soccer game and watch her daughter play, that was, for her, that was it, right? So that's kind of the extreme. I think work-life balance is subjective. It's really what you're able, what, what you think work-life balance is. Right. So for me, it may be, you know, as long as I get weekends free to spend with my family, I have a work-life balance. But I know that I've worked with individuals that said, you know, I come, and that's the other thing is, is another thing is, um, you know, this, this quote, uh, work to live or live to work. Right. And so I had one that worked to live. You know, she said, I'm happy coming here. I come in at nine. I leave at 430. I do my job and she was great, but my real work begins at home. So for her, the work-life balance was that nine to five-ish, nine to four or five-ish, right? It was, I come in, I do what I'm supposed to do. I do it to the very best of my ability, but realize that this is not my work, right? I'm working for something. And then when I go home, that's where my real important work, that's the life balance part. And so that's the two extremes. One is, you know, just enough time to see a soccer game. The other is, no, it's just my eight hours that I'm being paid for. And for me, it's been, you know, sometimes it's uh, been not good, but that was my own, you know, that, that was uh, my own, I wouldn't say fault, but that was my own decision, right? It's uh, sometimes I work weekends, you know, sometimes I work late in the evenings. Um, but if I'm okay with it because it's not impacting the things that I think are meaningful to me, right? Uh, which is my family. So my family is meaningful to me. And so weekends are for them. And if I have to work longer time in the evenings, Monday to Friday, that's okay. I'm willing to make that, you know, trade off for those decisions. So work-life balance, and, and it changes over time. Your work-life balance when you're single may be different than when you have two or three kids and additional responsibilities. So it does change over time as well. But I think you have to know what your work-life balance is, right? And uh, in order to make a decision about whether they take on, for example, another role may come and you say, okay, the work-life balance is not, there's not gonna be work-life balance, but I choose to take on this other role because, and that's a decision you make. And then your work-life balance suffers and then it reestablishes and it's different than when you, before you took on that additional role. Thank you, Max, for sharing your perspectives with us today. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me again. Hopefully, you know, I had some insights that would be meaningful to your uh, audience. And thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chickermain. And I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.